So uh, I'm uh, chuntering my way through John's gospel. I have been since, uh, when, since the lockdown started. In the, anyway, it's a long story, and it's been it's a long series. And hopefully we're nearing the end. We're going to look at John chapter 19. And I was listening to a podcast this week, and um, I was struggling with this passage because um, we're going to look at the death of Jesus and I like the idea that it's not Easter Sunday and we're looking at it at another time because sometimes I think um, we just take things for granted at Christmas and Easter and Palm Sunday and whatever it is. And the story doesn't come afresh. Whereas if you look at it at the wrong time of the year, hopefully it says something different. But I was struggling with this. And um, in this podcast, somebody asked this question and it just caused me to really think about it. The question was this, would Jesus' death for us be the same if he died in his sleep? Now, if you're like me, that just, and you go all over the place. And I, I, I appreciate that sometimes I go in very strange places with my sermons because I think about things that ordinary people perhaps don't. So I'm hoping that some of you, that is a very interesting question. Could we have the same faith if Jesus had lived and died of old age, gracefully and peacefully, and then risen from the dead? Would we have the same faith? Or what if he died in a sort of heroic, glorious way in battle? Because what we discover in John's gospel is that the way Jesus dies is actually foretold, it's predicted in the Old Testament. And John wants us to understand, in fact, all the gospel writers want us to understand that, that the way Jesus died wasn't some sort of random event, that it was at least foretold. And therefore, Jesus, knowing the scriptures and knowing what was before him and coming into the world, knew the way he was going to die. And therefore, it becomes quite clear that it's quite intentional and that everything that John is going to tell us is telling us for a reason. And that's what I want to unpack uh, this evening. And then Joel's going to lead us in responding together. We'll share in communion uh, and we'll we'll spend some time in thanksgiving, in reflection and in worship. Some of these are already up on our YouTube channel or on our um, website or on our podcast and you can find these kind of things later where the beginning of the rest seems like in those optimistic days when I thought I'd finished at Easter, uh, we talked about Jesus being arrested and we talked on Easter Sunday about the different kind of king that he is. And so we pick it up at the end of verse 18 where Pilate has brought Jesus out in front of the crowd of God's people and said, why don't we, I can't find anything wrong with him. Let me set this guy free. And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Why did he have him beaten? Because the people who were to be crucified, the people who were to be executed, were being punished. What was going on was a criminal case. And Jesus had been brought to Pilate by the the, the leaders of the people of God and accused of blasphemy and of proclaiming himself as king. And so what happens now is he's he's whipped. Flogged means he's taken a, 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 um, 
a whip, probably with knots in it, and he's whipped on his back probably for 39 or 40 times, which would near enough kill us anyway. But it's a punishment. And why uh, does John want us to know that he is being punished? Because it's important in, the, in what is going on that we understand that Jesus isn't just dying in his sleep, that he is being punished. He is being punished as though he has done something seriously, seriously wrong. And this becomes important because he is dying the death of a guilty person. And so we believe that Jesus was punished for us. That you and I don't deserve to live eternally. That you and I have stuff in our lives that we've done that's damaged others intentionally or unintentionally. That, that, we, excuse me, that we live lives that are, that are self-centered. And that if we carried on this way of life in heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven. So we can't do that. And that none of us deserve to live for eternity. And death is our rightful punishment. And yet Jesus takes our punishment. He is punished in our place. And it's important that, that, that for the, the New Testament writers to explain that. He is punished in our place. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And again, these words are so familiar. But there's two aspects of this. One is, it is humiliating. They're making fun of him. They are teasing him. They are bullying him. And the crown of thorns, the thorns are symbols of um, all that's wrong in the world. And it would have scratched him and hurt him and probably pushed it down on his head. So there's a painful thing that's going on. But above all, it's a crown. You call yourself a king. You're the king of rubbish. You're the king of nothing. And so there is an element of humiliating and there is a disgrace that is going on. And Jesus knowingly takes this humiliation. And they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And I wish I could articulate better. Maybe we just pause for a moment and, and hear those words. What that was like. Here's the creator of the universe who intimately knows those who are slapping him and laughing at him. And he has the power to calm the storm, to raise the dead, to feed thousands, the, the power to call a lightning bolt, whack, and, and he takes it. This is the world's idea of weakness. Because we're meant to stand up for ourselves. We're meant to defend ourselves if others uh, bully us or intimidate us. We need to be strong. That's the way of our culture and of many cultures in the world. And Jesus is weak. Many would call it pathetic. But actually it is 
a God of self-restraint, a God of holding back, a God who's choosing to take the humiliation. And so what is deliberately going on and what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is modeling the way of the cross. We're invited to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This behavior isn't the behavior of God that no human being is to emulate. This is the behavior of a follower of Jesus. To live lives of gentleness that others would call weak. To live lives of self-restraint that others would laugh and mock. And I think that's one of the distinctives of being a follower of Jesus rather than being a religious person. Religious people want to impose their morality on everyone around them and try and stop people from using bad language or blaspheming or insulting their prophet or their God. But Jesus turns the other cheek. And sometimes I, I, I worry that as, as Christians we get overhung up with defending Jesus who never defended himself. And he actually doesn't ask us to defend him because it is in the weakness that there is strength. It is in this paradox, this opposite way of responding that Jesus transforms a situation. And we'll see in a moment at the end how he transforms a couple of people. And once more, Pilate came out and said to him, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for the charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Pilate does not want to crucify Jesus. Pilate can't see what's wrong with him. He's fearful of the crowd, but he basically is trying to let Jesus go. It is not Pilate that crucifies Jesus. It is God's people. It's people like you and me. People who proclaimed that they loved God and followed God and were waiting for God and were looking for God. People who kept all his commands. Those are the people. It's you and I. I'm just going to... I don't know what's happening in my ears. They're kind of wiggling or something. Let's put my glasses on top. There we go. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify crucify it wasn't a race that crucified Jesus it was us it was you and I from then on Pilate tried to set Jesus free but the people kept shouting if you let this man go you are no friend of Caesar anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar and when Pilate heard this and brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as stove pavement it was a day of preparation of the Passover it was about noon here is your king Pilate said to the Jews but they shouted take him away take him away crucify him shall I crucify your king Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests replied. And Jesus is warning us not to reject him as our king. 
And we talked about that on Easter Sunday, that the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom of strength. It's not a kingdom of the sword. He said, put the sword away. It's not a kingdom of oppression. It's not a kingdom of where the end justifies the means. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom of compassion. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of transformation. It's a kingdom that accepts the woman caught in adultery and asks those who are without sin to throw the first stone and then tells her to go and leave her life of sin. It's the kingdom of someone who comes to the, the, the foulest and most unpleasant traitor in the village and says, I'm going to eat with you because you're worth it. And we're not to reject that kingship. That hold that Jesus invites us to give him over our lives where we say, here's my life, Lord. I'll do what you would have me do. Finally, Pilate handed him over to, the to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He carried his own cross. We know from the other accounts that someone came and helped him with that. But this sense of, of carrying it, some of the, the films that you see, see this sense of people watching the humiliation. Here's a criminal. Here is a criminal here is the worst of the worst about to experience the worst punishment of all. And there's an isolation, there's a loneliness to it. There's a sense of him there on his own. And there's a way in which Jesus is asking us whether we are prepared to carry our cross for him. He uses that phrase a number of times with the disciples. Will you take up your cross and follow me? Are we willing to walk alongside him? Maybe through places of disgrace or humiliation or misunderstanding or conflict or difficulty. In the dark and difficult places of the world. The places of work, family, where it's hard and we, we would quite like to stop being a follower of Jesus. Because the, the, the demand upon us is difficult because we feel unpopular. And Jesus says, will you carry your cross? Will you walk with me? Here they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the people read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. This is quite a public humiliation. This is punishment. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I've written what I have written. The people and the leaders of the people of God disown him. He's not our king. This sense of isolation and of abandonment that Jesus knowingly goes through. He's not surprised. Isaiah and the psalmist and other places in the Old Testament have predicted these things in remarkable clarity. We'll see that in a moment. And the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was sleeveless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
normal clothes of a poorer person, a humble person. And there is this great powerlessness of seeing his worldly possessions, people choosing and, and taking lots over it. I trust, as I want to encourage all of us to write a will. It's my job to be involved in funerals and um, need a will. <laughs> but imagine that you saw your possessions being divided up by strangers who said, well, I don't really want that. We'll draw lots. The humiliation, the powerlessness of it. They're on the cross seeing what you have being perhaps laughed over, perhaps um, not being valued, certainly not going to his mum who is there, but being taken away from her. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. That said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Now we looked at this passage coincidentally a few weeks ago in our call to prayer, which I know all of you watch uh, through the week at 8.30. We'll be doing a different psalm each, each Sunday morning. And we looked at this one and we talked about how uh, this is prophesied. And the beginning of this psalm is where uh, Jesus uh, is quoting the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of this psalm. And Jesus on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which the other gospel writers tell us, is pointing us to this psalm and says, I want you to notice I am fulfilling this. And so uh, Jesus knows that verse, they divided my clothes. This is written by David hundreds of years before. We know that we are versions of the Old Testament that pre-exist Jesus, and there it is. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus expected what was going to happen, and that's quite important because it also means, therefore, that he chose it. He decides this is what he wants to do. And John tells us that this was known, this was foreseen. And so there is clearly a plan for your and mine salvation that has been given from the beginning of time that uh, all of the Old Testament lead up to this moment. We talked about it before, but when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God, there is a whole of the story of the people of God and, the, and their exodus and the Passover and the way that the Lamb was used and the blood of the Lamb was used. It's all coming out here in Jesus. This was intentional. This was planned, but why? Because God wanted to offer salvation to you and to me and to every human being. Near the cross, Jesus stood. He just stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four ladies standing there. And when Jesus saw them, his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whom he loved is John's, John the writer, not John the Baptist, John the writer. John the disciple, the writer. It's his way of saying me. He isn't saying I was the one that Jesus loved and by the way, didn't really like Peter or Andrew because they were numpties. He's not saying that. What he's saying is... I am the one and I knew I was loved. It's a great little phrase, isn't it? How would you describe yourself? I'm the one that I, I know I'm loved by God. 
So he says to the, the, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So even at the point of dying, the, the crucifixion would have lasted hours. It was agony. As lots of you will know, there would have been a nail uh, through the wrist, uh, probably not probably the hand, because that would have ripped, but through the bone of the nail, uh, of the wrist, maybe a, a, a a nail through the, the bone of the feet, uh, and the person would have either bled to death or more likely they would have died of exhaustion and suffocation because every breath they would have to pull up on the pain of those nails. And he, in that agony, is modeling a love for others. He is thinking of these women and of his disciples and of their pain. He looks beyond himself to care for others. Later, knowing that everything had been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, see the plan and the purpose, Jesus said, I am thirsty, and a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stick of the hyssop plant and lifted it to his lips. This death was horrific. It was agonizing. And I often say this, um, particularly in the baptismal talks, you will have heard me say this, but I just want to underline it again for us. Uh, if you bought something or you wanted to sell something on eBay and I said to you, how much is that worth? You would tell me the price either that you were prepared to pay for it or the price that somebody was prepared to pay for it on eBay. You may have the most beautiful uh, bike in the world. You put it on eBay and nobody offers you more than 20p. It's not worth anything other than 20p. The worth of something is the price that is paid. And the New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus paid a price for us, his life, his blood. And so what is going on in this story is Jesus is revealing the depth of his love. He intentionally, knowingly goes through this pain, this agony, this humiliation because he wants us to know that we're loved. For God so loved the world, so loved the world. Not careful, you know, it isn't for God thought about the world and thought he might as well do something for it. It isn't for God kind of cared for the world. It isn't for God begrudgingly. It is that he's so loved. At the beginning of John 13, when Jesus uh, goes to wash the disciples' feet, it says that Jesus was about to show them the complete, full extent of his love. And you and I are precious. And so is our neighbor. And so is the irritating person in the office. Precious. Because the blood of Jesus has been shed for you and for me and for them. When he'd received the drink, he said, it is finished. Again, a little pointer to Psalm 22. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what was finished? The suffering was finished. The punishment was taken. The sacrifice was complete. The plan of salvation was all to be proven in the resurrection. But in this moment, he takes our sin. He dies the death you and I deserve. He takes our place. 
So when Satan says you're not good enough, you're not loved, you can't be a Christian, you'll never be forgiven. When the regret and the pain of stuff we've done in our youth or in other, or, or even this week, says you're not good enough, we understand that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. He has taken our place. It is complete and victorious. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the others. Why do they break the legs? They break the legs so that you are no longer able to push yourself up on the nail and therefore that you, 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 your uh, shoulder blades, or doctors will explain this better than me, but you, 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 you kind of choke yourself because you can't push yourself up because your legs are in agony. You're hanging. So they break their legs when they want to go home. So it's taken hours and they break the legs to speed it up. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He's already died for us. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And apparently, that's what happens when a person's died, and you, you pierce them, you puncture them, you will see different colored fluids coming out. And John wants us to know I want you to be absolutely clear. He says, he was dead. The man who saw it, that's me, John, saying this. John, look, I'm saying, I'm telling you, this is my testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. Repetition in the, new, in the Bible means this is important. John is telling this, it is absolutely certain that guy was dead. He was, in the words of John Cleese, an ex-person. He was no more. He was deceased. He was, I know, unless you're going over your head going, what? Parrot sketch, look it up. I'm getting too old. I know the words of the parrot sketch off by heart is a bad indication of my life spent. He is no more. He is dead. And that's really important. We'll come back to that next week. Um, don't want to spoil the story, but there's a good ending. But it comes next week. These things happen that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. As another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It was expected and chosen. Why? Because it want, Jesus wants to teach us something by the way he dies. By the way he dies. Dying in his sleep, no good. He's not going to die in battle. He's going to die in the opposite of battle. He's teaching us that the punishment has been paid. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion in a few moments. We're going to enter into all that he's given for us. He's teaching us how much we are loved. And the importance of accepting and receiving that. But not only that, he is modeling for us he says, take up your cross and follow me. He is modeling for us the way to live, the nature and methods of God, i.e. humility, weakness, and forgiveness. And you may feel the day, daily life this week that you're weak or that you're pushed around or that you're too gentle or that you're too soft or that you're too forgiving. This is the way of the cross. One final thing. Later. Two guys turn up. 
Two guys who've been part of the leadership of the people of God. Two guys that we imagine probably were part of the meetings where people were saying, we need to crucify Jesus. Two guys of position and influence. Joseph Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus was one of the leaders, and we can deduce that he, because he knew Joseph, uh, who was a man who was wealthy enough to have a, a tomb nearby, that they, he was also probably part of that group, but they were frightened. They'd come at night, Nicodemus would come at night because he didn't want anyone to see him following Jesus. So he was like many of us, where we, we want to be here in church, we just hope nobody knows we're here. And they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 25 pounds worth, 75 pounds. Quite a lot to anoint Jesus. And taking Jesus' body down, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish, Jewish burial custom. So here are two people of wealth and position who are af- afraid. And something has happened in the way they have seen Jesus die. That they suddenly have the courage. And they do something expensive. They use their own grave. They use expensive uh, things. There is a financial cost that understanding what, who Jesus is and what he was about has transformed who they are. But more than that, there is a reputational cost. They decide to come out and say, I am a follower of Jesus. I will take his body and I will own this humiliated criminal, this weak enemy of the state. We will declare as our friends, as our friend. And therefore, there was a physical risk for them. I wonder what our response to the cross is. And whether it grabs us in transformation. That we're willing to overcome fear. To be generous with our lives, to offer to God, back to him all that he's given us. To say, instead of saying, God, will you bless me? God, will you do this? To actually say, God, what can I do for you? Here are my resources. Here is my time. Here is my life. Here are my relationships. Here is my job. Here is who I am, and I want to give it back to you. And there'll be time as we reflect on that. What is it that God is asking us to do in response? And maybe to say, Lord, I want to live as a follower of the cross, as one who carries the cross, as one who lives a life like that of Jesus on the cross, a life of restraint, of gentleness, of forgiveness, of compassion, of sacrifice. And to be known as one who loves Jesus.